Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about the new restrictions around COVID here in Illinois. And then we're excited to be joined by Karen Swallow Pryor and Tish Harrison Warren. You're listening to The Common Good. Everybody, welcome to The Common Good. You're on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Excited that it's Friday. You always say I'm, I'm the most excited for the weekend, and I, I'm excited for the weekend. So mm-hmm. for the rest of the hour after the kind of this first segment, so starting around 420, we're going to have Karen Swallow Pryor and Tish Harrison Warren with us. They were on probably two or three weeks ago, the two of them, and they have been gracious enough to come back on. Mm-hmm. And uh, to say we're excited would be an understatement. Uh, we don't even have a real reason to have them on, except that they're brilliant and fun. So uh, looking forward to that one, aren't we? Well, they're, aren't we? Yeah, we sure are, aren't Brian. We? We, uh, <laughs> yeah, they're both independently brilliant, and yes. they're together. It's uh, it's magic. I, lo- <laughs> I think it's so fun. We don't do that very often, actually, like two guests at the same time in the same segment. But something about... their chemistry and the way that they they both have such mutual respect for each other which makes it a lot of fun and uh yeah i'm i'm really looking forward to that that last if you've not we should maybe be reposting that one because the last time they were on was brilliant i thought so can't can't recommend you stick around enough for that yep and then later on in the show we're gonna have matt and Lori king Mm -hmm. authors of a book called an impossible marriage it's a fascinating story we're gonna have them on in the five o'clock hour so lots of great stuff today on a friday show but Hey, we got to start with COVID. We got to start by discussing uh, the COVID pandemic. Sure. And uh, and a couple major things going on here in Illinois uh, at the Daily Herald. I grabbed this article, but you'll find this anywhere. And that is that not only are we moving closer and closer to or, or tighter and tighter, but uh, Governor Pritzker has basically said, if things don't change drastically, we're going to go to a statewide lockdown. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my wife and I were talking just before the show, before we started the show, she was like, what exactly does that mean? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what exactly they could they can you know enforce and not enforce or whatever else. But what it does mean is that we're moving in the wrong direction, uh, that things are going in the wrong direction. On top of that, another article here from NBC News talking about well, we're all excited for the vaccine. It's probably going to get worse first. We got to get through the winter, and it's going to get worse. And so, uh, Ian, especially what we're facing here in Illinois, uh, how do you process that news? Right, like as you see the daily numbers, and you hear the governor saying we're moving towards a lockdown. You and I have talked about my kids had essentially their last day of in-person school today before going fully remote again. Churches feel like it's going backward. All this kind of stuff feels like it's going backwards. Is it uh, just kind of? What's what's your uh, what's your reaction? What's your response to all that's that's going on around us? I mean, I've never felt dumber, Brian. I can say that with confidence, you know, because, you know, I have friends in all sorts of different parts of the country with various different political and theological leanings. So every time I feel like I'm reading something that looks pretty straightforward, someone that I consider way smarter than me, yeah. goes, ah, but that number doesn't mean what this number says or how you're understanding <laughs> so the percentage. Or what, and I'm always like, wait, what? How how am I not? <laughs> getting this this is probably not helpful radio or helpful to confess on radio um yeah i feel i feel like my it's like information whiplash i'm like i feel like every for every point there's a counterpoint that also seems that's right fairly legitimate in my mind and that you know we've talked about you know media bias and all sorts of other things and some of it's obviously just not helpful at the very least we're in illinois so there's right. certain information that's right before us where i can i can certainly look at friends in other states and think do you know something that we don't or do we know something that you don't mm-hmm. or wait, what is it? Like I've never, I've ne- not since like college <laughs> have I felt um, 
so unsure of my capacity to like process and understand information. Good way to put it. It's so frustrating. And I'm sure other people feel the same way. Nothing feels like it's as cut and dry as I, as I want it to be. And even if it is, you know, you'll net, we're never going to escape kind of the endless rabbit trails of conspiracies. and like, Oh, that's because you're reading it from this source or the data has been manipulated in some way, shape or form, or you're not, you know, the, I don't know. I don't know if you feel that way or not. I, it is a it's a very weird thing. And again, of course, because the uh, you know, particular warning of things in our own state does have implications. You and I are pastors and you know Exactly at our church we've even like softly presented the notion of some kind of ninety day, you know, reopen plan. And so of course people are like, Hey, does this change that? Right. And right. the really honest question is like, We don't know. Don't know. Right. <laughs> Which you right. know, I think uh, this is probably a different segment for a different time, but it's worth, I think leaders need to get comfortable saying they don't know. I think that's a really important skill to learn, but still feels crappy. It still feels crappy when you're in any kind of leadership position and the honest to God response is we're not sure. We don't. Right. We're praying. We're faithful. We're trying to be really diligent with our planning and organizing. And we, we don't know. Yeah, it's so true. And I, I, I've had to get good at that. I actually put that in an email to the church today. I said, thank you for your patience. I just don't, you know, we're, none of us were trained in this and, you know, that kind of owning of, uh, we're trying to figure this out as we go. And I think I'm saying it to my kids all the time Right. when they're like, well, when will we go back to school? We understand we can't go now. When will we? I'm like, I I don't know. Like it could be December 1st. It could be January 1st. It could be uh, September of next year. I have no idea. And so I'm trying to live out what I'm trying to teach my kids with rolling with the punches not trying to like get up in arms about everything and like, okay, let's figure this out as we go. Cause as you said, you know, right now uh, we we've closed all the restaurants and I just, I didn't even realize this. Somebody said Illinois is the only state right now with complete closure of indoor dining. And I was like, Oh, well, like what you said, what do we know that they don't or vice versa? Or vice versa. Right. And, and uh, it is so confusing, but it is also uh, it's both worrisome to see the numbers and the people around me, but then also the people I see getting sick, they're getting better, which is also a thing to celebrate. Mm-hmm. So there's so much to this. And now Thanksgiving's coming and, and everyone's, you know, like, what do we do with Thanksgiving and uh, Christmas and all this stuff? So anyway, I know all of you out there are living this too, but but we just kind of wanted to reflect from where we're at. Like uh, my kids are home from school now, uh, church trying to figure things out. But, you know, the, the good news is, uh, that, that we can still continue to do this together. And uh, yeah, like uh, continue, continue to just do and control what you can control. So anyway, coming up next, we are thrilled, as we said, to be joined by Tish Harrison Warren uh, and Karen Swallow Pryor. Uh, this is something we've been looking forward to all week. So join us next as they will stay with us for the rest of the hour here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us on a beautiful Friday afternoon. Uh, one of our favorite things about this show is to be able to just to talk to interesting people and, and then even to have people come back on the show and to be able to talk further. And with that in mind, we are thrilled to be joined for the rest of the hour uh, for the second time by Karen Swallow Pryor and Tish Harrison Warren. Uh, Karen and Tish, thanks so much for doing this again with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Happy to be here. Yeah. Well, why don't you, uh, let's start the same way. We don't want to assume everybody listened last time. So let's have you guys introduce yourself to our audience, however you would like. Karen, uh, why don't you go first? 
Sure. Well, of course, I uh, was on your show last week. That's like the biggest claim to fame. Or <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, but besides that, um, I am a research professor of English and Christianity and culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, where uh, I actually um, transitioned after teaching 21 years at Liberty University. So I live uh, and re breathe and sleep literature, but also cultural engagement um, and kind of commenting on the culture from a Christian and specifically, I guess, Southern Baptist perspective. Um, so it's great to be with you again. Mm -hmm. And Tish, how about yourself? Why don't you introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah, um, my name is Tish Harrison Warren, and I'm a priest in the Anglican Church of North America. And um, so I'm, a, it's a, I'm an Anglican priest, and I am a writer and author. I'm a monthly columnist for Christianity Today and write for various newspapers and magazines like Karen does. Um, mm -hmm. And then I um, am a mother of three, um, and my son is not sleeping this week. He's just decided <laughs> never to sleep again. So if I sound like I'm incoherent or drunk or something it's just because I'm not sleeping with uh, this baby and um so I have a book coming out and I a book liturgy of the ordinary is out and I have a book coming out in January called prayer in the night and uh, which you can pre-order today and um Karen and I are friends and we mm -hmm. um co-founded something called the pelican project together that's right this, uh, my boy isn't sleeping either, so we can be incoherent together oh for the rest gosh. of the hour. I, think, I, think I'm glad I was going to ask, so I'm glad you brought that up. Are you drunk? No. <laughs> actually, this no. whole interview is an intervention, Tish. <laughs> I'm drinking sparkling water as we speak. and um, But no, our sons, we should just have them call each other if they're both married. <laughs> Keeping us up. <laughs> just just baby zoom i think there's a market for that i think someone should baby zoom. That. yeah so, okay so the last time the two of you were on it was just i think a few days before the election and you you both had written articles that were it looked like catching a, a ton of steam and you also like anything political you're going to have accolades and pushback and now since the election which you know brian and i've talked about pretty much every day has been pretty wild not totally surprising but certainly bizarro world um you both have been relatively quiet and i i would i would i would love to selfishly just know what are you thinking now what are you feeling what are you sort of seeing and purveying and observing in the culture and and the world around us and uh karen why don't we start with you with that yeah well let me just say um and of course this will make me sound like a jerk but uh you know, nothing I'm seeing now is surprising. Um, uh, I, but I think most of us kind of knew that the election was going to be contested in some way or another and that um, people would be skeptical about the outcome. I mean, you know, of course, that those sorts of things were um, stated um, well before before the ele election. So I guess that's partly why I've actually been quiet, because I expected mm -hmm. um, that Biden would win. And I expected that um, Trump and his supporters would say that there, you know, there was fraud. And I'm very happy to let the 
courts and the system sort that out. And so, um, you know, uh, and, and let let the process take its due course. But in the meantime, yeah, it's just really been interesting and, you know, honestly, disheartening, I guess, um, to just to see um, people, especially within the church, just so cling so desperately to either outcome, really. Mm, um, right. We really are turning to politics as sort of our salvation. Um, and that's just, you know, that's the moment we're in right now, I think. Yeah, no kidding. Tish, what would you add? Yeah, I I haven't spoken about it really at all or written on it at all. Um, and part of that, but yeah, so once you ask, I realize, oh, I, I probably do have things to say about it. I just, some of it, I think for Karen and I both, um, is we aren't political analysts. So um, right. I'm mm. a pastor. And granted, that said, I wrote about the election twice before it happened. So I'm not saying we never talk about politics, but I feel like the conversations that are happening now are like, you know, why why did Latinos on the border vote for Trump? Like, why mm. do, what do we have to say about election fraud? And I'm sort of like, I'm a Anglican priest. Like that's not, I mean, I have <laughs> thoughts and opinions about that, but like, I don't need it's, you know, stay in your lane to some extent. Um, mm -hmm. And, um, but yeah, but if you're asking, I'm happy to <laughs> tell you. <laughs> I, yes, I was actually surprised because I agree with Karen. Like my hope is, is not in either of these candidates. And I know that's easy to say, but to, I really feel like um, the fruits of the spirit are the chief political commitment of the church, even like mm -hmm. to be a people shaped by that. And so um, I didn't know if I would, how my, what my reaction was, but I honestly, Biden winning the, the main thing I felt was um, honestly like, I don't know if it's okay to say aloud, but I felt relief that we don't have to care about Trump's Twitter anymore. It was like literally that specific, like he, yep. what we can ignore what he says on Twitter starting in January. Like, mm. and I hope that he doesn't tweet anymore. I hope he just decides to have, you know, a nice quiet life full of golf and, goodness, you know, whatever he wants to devote his years to. So I mean, I'm not wishing ill on him, but I do, there is like a, I, I, I think that I just want a, a restoration of um, like civility. And I know any Republican is like, Biden's not the one to do that. And maybe he's not, maybe he's not, but um, hmm. I'm hoping for the best, you know, I, mm -hmm, I'm, right. I'm, I, he, I have no idea what he's going to be about, but I hope that we can have just a, a sort of really basic sense. I mean, I'm talking, I, I'm talking a politically here. I'm talking about the sorts of yeah. things that allow like Michelle Obama and George Bush to be friends and, and mm -hmm. have a conversation, which mm. um, some people criticize and say, that's just about class. It's basically like rich people can be friends with rich people but the reality is, I think that civility is um, absolutely essential if we're going to maintain like peace. I mean, I, I mean, literally like anything besides a civil war. And so um, 
so I was grateful for that. I, I think, um, you know, the, the fact that 70% of Republicans, um, think the election was unfair is I, I actually have been shocked. I mean, mm-hmm. I've just mm-hmm. never seen anything like this in my lifetime. Um, and so, um, that's concerning to me, but I think like Karen, I'm like, well, I can't, I'm not in charge of that. And so I, um, can wait. I feel like if I speak on that now, I mean, mm-hmm. I'm reading, I'm reading experts, but I'm, I'm mm-hmm. waiting. I guess I have enough trust in these institutions still like mm-hmm. to, to investigate and to do the things they need to do. Um, right. I mean, the thing that I've been most interested in is Michael Ware's piece in the New York Times. If anyone has seen that, it's so, so Mm -hmm. good. Um, And I would highly recommend it. And um, he, the the reasons that that I like it are because it, first of all, it starts, it analyzes the vote specifically about white evangelicals. So it looks like at this point, 24% or 25% of white evangelicals voted for Biden which is, um, uh, that's obviously five, six points more than, um, in 2016, right. which I mean, five, no, five, six percentages, but apparently it's 11 mm. points. I don't even know what points are, but <laughs> Michael Ware says it's 11 points, which is apparently this huge shift in, mm. and we, and because evangelical white evangelicals are very numerous in America we're talking millions of millions of people, like over 5 million people right. who switch their vote. And that doesn't count uh, all the third party folks. And so um, just just as a white evangelical, that is interesting to me. I would like to I I would it's interesting. It at least says that there are millions of people that are persuadable, that are like mm-hmm. that are not just one party or the other in all situations because they voted one way and now they voted another way. So they're, they are people that are open to argument and open to, you know, exploring the options. And, Mm -hmm. um, and again, I think it's more than that if you count third party voters. So it's, Mm -hmm. that's interesting to me. And, um, but then I love Michael's piece because he doesn't end there. He ends well, first he calls by, he basically says, so Biden, like, won in part because of religious voters. I mean, in Georgia, three times the amount of white evangelicals went for Biden than, than Clinton, which makes a huge difference in, yeah. the, in the Georgia results. And so he, he basically says, like, keep this in mind, Biden, when you're, you're talking about unity keep this in mind, like keep yeah. these folks in mind and calling him kind of to be, um, to be, I guess, a little um, hesitant to just sort of steamroll religious liberty. And so I appreciated Michael's piece a lot. And then he ends with a call for what Karen's talking about, about basically for politics not to define us, for right. um, politics not to define our faith. So it's a, it's a great Great piece. That's great. Uh, something I've wanted to ask you guys when we knew we were going to have you on, Ian and I, we, we find ourselves talking a lot about very 
the same things it feels like over and over. And one of them is about the concept of the celebrity pastor and just celebrities and evangelicalism as a whole. Uh, I would love to get your guys' opinion on, uh, could you guys speak to the effects maybe of this celebrity culture in your opinion and evangelicalism? And Karen, maybe you could take that one first for us. Yeah, I mean, I think this is very much connected to the election results and the way that our politics have gone um, for, you know, for the past, not just this election, perhaps, but even before, I think that um, that celebrity is probably the greatest form of power in our culture today. And so everyone's looking for it, and whether for good or bad reasons. I mean, everyone wants to be influential and that is a way to be influ- influential, whether it's, you know, through being a YouTuber or an Instagram star or a politician. And then there's something about, you know, that, um, you know, getting access to that kind of celebrity. Um, There's a great piece that David Dark wrote um, a few days ago for America magazine Mm -hmm. talking, you know, sharing his own experience of having a moment of access to power that just turned into nothing, but it was enough for him to realize just how alluring and seductive that is and how much we're willing, most of us, you know, are, if we're honest, are willing to compromise even just a little bit about just to keep that, that um, connection open, that access to power mm-hmm. um, and celebrity. And so this is, yeah, the church is not immune from this quite to the contrary, the church has has seized upon celebrity as, you know, as a way even of advancing the gospel. I mean, in the 19th century, it was about colonialism and imperialism. We use that, you know, as we use the advance of the gospel as an excuse to plunder other countries. Well, now we don't do that as much, you know, as much. Um, but we, you know, we found another kind of worldly thing, which is celebrity. And um, mm. we often try to use the excuse that we are advancing the gospel mm. um, by exploiting celebrity. Yeah. And Tish, what, what are your thoughts on that, Tish? Yeah. So I have, um, I've actually, I wrote a, a piece about, um, celebrity authority, like authority and celebrity in the blogosphere in 2017 that got me, mm. it's like the most pushback that I've ever gotten <laughs> for a piece ever in my life. So she's putting it mildly. <laughs> so, people get upset when you start talking about celebrity and authority. They really do. People are uncomfortable with the notion of authority, but authority has to do with power. Exactly. Like Karen said, and so um, uh, the idea of Christian celebrity has always been part of American evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. All, like um, Charles Whitfield was described by a theologian as the place where religion and the market meet. Um, mm-hmm. And so that, I mean, that was a, like beginning of our nation. And so um, there's been... Um, it, but it's increased, obviously. I mean, it's it, that has grown, right? And then you had kind of celebrity preachers in the Second Great Awakening, and then you had Billy Sunday, and um, so there's um, and you know, um, Billy Graham, and you, it, it, and then you have the internet, right? And so then right. then there's there's this um, ability to leverage that. To now we have all kinds of Christian celebrities. We have kind of more progressive celebrities. You, get, you know, you have your Jen Hotmaker and you have your Franklin Graham and you have like, you have your different sorts of um, celebrities and subcultures. Um, 
But what's interesting, I mean, there's so much I could say about that. I think it's mm-hmm. not good for the soul. Uh, it's mm-hmm. not good for, I mean, I, I can say this as a, as a, a, like my book has been somewhat successful and I'm not a celebrity, but I can tell you um, that that's, it's it's hard on the soul, like to mm-hmm. be a, a Christian that speaks about God in public a lot. Um, mm-hmm. And, a, and, and I, and, and some of you, you have to learn when to shut up and when, I mean, this is partly why Karen and I have not said anything. You have to learn to sort of Mm. have an intern, have thoughts and opinions that you don't share, have internal an internal life, but not eternal life. I'm saying internal life. Um, (laughs) Well, but um, why not both? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, um, but I mean, one thing that concerns me is that um, we have this picture of sort of the celebrity and and getting celebrity power, and so then power becomes um, decoupled from institutions and from um, from accountability, right? And so, mm-hmm. um, I mean, you see this and like think about the sort of difference of celebrity that I'm trying to think like someone like. Um, I don't know, even like um, Bill Gates has, right? He's a celebrity, mm. but Bill Gates has like a board over him. Like if, if, right, Bill, Gates, right. like if Bill Gates did something terrible or lost his mind, like there would be, there would there's accountability there versus like the Kardashians, right? Mm. Who it's just sort of like they're celebrities for being celebrities. Um, and no offense to the Kardashians. I really, I have no <laughs> strong opinion about the Kardashians, but I'm, I'm just saying that I think that um, I'm concerned about the, the coupling of celebrity power with the complete erosion of our institutions. I mean, we have more and more of an erosion of institutions and accountability that comes with that and um, credentialing that comes with that. And I think that this really does shape our politics. I mean, one of the reasons I was concerned about Donald Trump being elected in 2016 was that I was saying, regardless of what you think of his policies, that I'm concerned he'll change the notion of governance itself, that we won't hmm. see it anymore as um, service to the public, as a as something that requires like competence um, and his, like, I mean, like people hate that longtime politicians, they hate that Biden's been, you know, in there for 40 odd years. They want to drain the swamp. Right. But that presumes that things like experience and institutional leadership are bad, are mm. malformative. And I see the same thing in the church. Right. That um, We think, you know, non-denomination, like people, you know, people outside the institutions are more pure or better or um but it often ends up like there's a reason that we have guilds. There's a reason that we have things like expertise and fields. Mm-hmm. Um, and so with the loss of that, I, I worry that it, all, it becomes like all of life, like the American government itself as a reality TV show. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And you can see this a little bit with like, um, you know, there's since the election, there's been multiple um, comments about um Trump not really caring about um, the Senate results, right? Which is really different than former um, folks, but he's not an institutional player, right? Like what matters is the Trump 
brand. People are drawn to that or they're repelled by that. And I, I just worry that that's infected. And then, and then there is a sense of like, where is he accountable? Like, is there institutional right. accountability? Um, so I worry that's affected all of life that pastors and who are mainly supposed to be caring for the souls of their people have mm. become, it's becomes a brand, right? It becomes right. a mm. platform. And then, so if everything becomes about platform, instead of service to the people that you're mm. called to, we've just, it's where it's bad news. It's bad news for the nation, for schools, for institutions, but mostly for the church. Mm -hmm. I, I totally agree. I, I, there's a line from that David Dark article, actually, that I've been thinking about since I read it. And he said, we become what we normalize. And I thought that was, that was so appropriate. One of the posts that I probably got the most pushback from recently, I said something like, Hey, declaring that regardless of what happens, Jesus is still king doesn't excuse us from like doing the hard work of seeking justice and healing and restoration. And I got all sorts of blowback on that. Like, oh, you don't think Jesus is king? You don't think Jesus is Lord? And I'm like, no, it's, it's because I believe that he is that I think there's still a lot of work to do. I, I'd love to know how, how do you reconcile that? Because as you both said, like we're not political, you know, scientists or analysts, but we are, we are um, Christ followers so is there a tension between declaring, hey, Jesus is still on the throne. However, there's still parts of our culture and society that are broken that we need to like work towards healing and restoration. How do you how do you reconcile that, particularly in light of what Dark said about, hey, we, we're going to become what we normalize, whatever that is? Mm -hmm. That's that's a great question. I, I love I mean, I really want love what Tish said about um, replacing um, service um, to the Lord and to people. Um, with our platforms where we're just elevating ourselves. And, and so I think I, you know, because I do have, you know, somewhat of a platform, um, I, you know, I, I'm asking my question, asking that question every day, um, you know, especially as I'm engaging with people that, you know, might annoy or frustrate me, but I do feel like that they are, that there is correction and teaching that I can offer. And, um, and so, you know, even just through, you know, social media, um, and all the people that are watching these kinds of engagements. So even just in a, to me, a trivial, annoying and energy sapping way, just engaging on social media is a way that I feel like I can serve by modeling, um, loving, trying to be charitable and, and rein the snark in. Um, <laughs> and it's only because I believe Jesus is Lord that it's right. even worth doing, right? right? Because otherwise, what is the what is the point? Then um, it really is just about, you know, the Nietzschean will to power. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Tish, what, what do you think? How, I, how do you kind of live in that tension? Live in the tension of... Can you define the tension for me? Yeah, the, ten the tension between what we tend to see, at least I do in my newsfeed, where it's people saying, hey, it doesn't matter who sits in what office. Jesus is still king. What oh, That often right. feels like a political version of sort of like just let go and let God, like a passive mm -hmm. spectator yeah, yeah, yeah. sort of like, I don't have to get involved. I don't have to, you know, how do, mm -hmm. yeah, how do you how do you walk that line? Yeah. Um, so, um, well, first of all, I want to say I totally agree with what Karen just said. Um, like she like she and I have conversations about this. Like this is something that we mm -hmm. wrestle with, right? Like I think anyone, pastors, writers, leaders, politicians, principals of schools have to also always be asking the question like how do I deal with power, right? Like how do I how do I steward this in a way that's cruciform that that 
to service of others and not just ego driven. Like these are really hard questions. Um, mm-hmm. So I mostly want to say like, I agree with Karen and we actually like, <laughs> these are things we talk about as friends and people. Um, and and then to the Jesus is Lord question, I think, um, so it's been interesting to me because, so I have had people say Jesus is Lord and then a bunch of people push back like, hey, that's, you know, maybe Jesus is Lord, but that's, that's something that privileged people can say hmm. um, to excuse. And I think, so I want to push against that. I'm like, no, the church has been saying this for uh, like when when they were killing Christians, the church mm-hmm. was still saying, Jesus, I mean, one of my right. very, very favorite little tidbits of church history is um, there's a martyrdom account. I don't remember who it is. It's, if anyone's listening, there's, that is a historian that's going to drive <laughs> him crazy. But it's this martyrdom account and, and it, you know, this Christian is killed. And then it says, you know, this happened when so-and-so was Caesar and when Jesus Christ was reigning on the throne forever. So it was like, it's this mic drop at the end. Of, it's just, a, it's just, a, it's a, in some ways, it seems yeah. like this understated moment because they're just, they're saying who the Caesar, who the, who is the king. But then right. the, in the context of this martyrdom account, they end it, but like when Jesus Christ is reigning on the throne forever. So it's just, um, what I'm saying is, there, there's some sense where Jesus Lord is is good and right to proclaim right now in the same way that we see in Isaiah six it begins right. you know in the year of King Uzziah's death I saw the Lord sitting on the, his mm. throne that that the King Uzziah's death would have seemed this was just political upheaval like crazy political um, to have King Uzziah die was just you know there's intrigue and who's going to take it and you know people the People are trying, there's coups, you know, there, there, it's just a tumultuous political time. And to say in that moment, I saw the Lord seated on the throne is a theological claim. Mm. So I actually think the problem isn't proclaiming Jesus' lordship, and we shouldn't push back on that. I don't think that's a privileged claim. I think that's what all Christians should be proclaiming. The problem is, if I mean, exactly what you're saying. If somehow Jesus' lordship makes us passive, I mean, that doesn't right. even make sense. Like the the <laughs> idea that the kingdom is coming is is we join in that work. Like the kingdom yeah. comes through through us, and and I mean, ultimately through the Spirit working through us. And so, um, so. Uh, I have a chat in my next book. I promise I'm not just trying to bring it in my book, but <laughs> it actually has no, to please do. Nice. Please do. But um, <laughs> in my next book, which is available uh, for pre-order anywhere near you, but um, but you know, no platform, just service. Uh, but uh, it, I talk about how we can. There is a weird dichotomy. It's not dichotomy. There's a false dichotomy that our culture has right now it feels like where work is either god's work or our work and it can't be both and we see this even Mm -hmm. in um the non-christian world i mean there's a i quote in the book a comedian named daniel sloss who i like a lot but i don't like his metaphysics but he's funny um (laughs) but he talks about how basically um that the way that parents feel 
like on on Christmas morning when when a kid opens the best gift and is like, "Thank you, Santa," and parents have to be like, "Oh, like I did so much work <laughs> for that gift," and and, yeah. and like Santa's getting all the credit. Um, that that's how doctors feel when you thank God for being cured of cancer or something like mm. that. Like the mm. idea that. And, and he has this bit about like, well, it wasn't God that went to medical school. It wasn't God whose name's <laughs> on your chart, right? And so the idea is like, it's either God or the doctor and it can't be both and you can't be grateful for both. And mm. if it's God, that somehow takes away from the doctor's work. And if it's the doctor's work, it takes away from it being God. And this um, this idea, I call it in the book, competitive agency, that either we have agency or God has agency, but it's in competition with each other, is completely unthinkable for almost all of human history. And so, mm-hmm. and certainly for the church. And the idea that our work is never separate from God's work, like because God is at work, we work and and our work is done with the energy and and fullness of God. Um, So I think that what you're hitting on is a much larger phenomenon of, Mm. of um, either of competitive agency that in reality. um, So we can, we can pin work and prayer against each other, which is what I address in my book. You get this right a little bit with like thoughts and prayers, you know, people mock that as being, that means we're passive, but the fact is, is that prayer is supposed to compel us to work. It's the, it's the propulsive force of work and work draws us back into prayer. And I could say, replace prayer with the life of God, like the kingship of Jesus, the life of God propels our work. And then it calls us Mm. back into the kingship of Jesus and the life of God. That's great. Yeah, that's great. Tish and Karen, we are so grateful for the both of you. This has been a joy for us. Let me point yes. people in a couple places. Uh, Karen, it's Karen, uh, on Twitter at K.S. Pryor, P-R-I-O-R. That's K.S. Pryor on Twitter. And Tish is at Tish underscore H underscore Warren. That's Tish underscore H underscore Warren. Also, KarenSwallowPryor.com. And you mm-hmm. can also go to Tish Harrison Warren. Dot com. So we'd encourage you go yeah. check out their articles, their books, and uh, you'll be better off for it. Uh, Karen and Tish, we are super grateful for this. Thanks so much for joining us again today. Thanks for having us. Thank oh, always you. a joy. Always a joy. Thank you guys so much. You're listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. You're drunk and you know it. Coming up this hour, Justice Alito had interesting things to say about religious liberty. And then we're joined by Matt and Lori Krieg, the authors of a new book, An Impossible Marriage. You're listening to The Common Good. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us today. If you've missed any of the show, including having a uh, uh, Tish Harrison Warren, I went backwards with that, right? Tish Warren Harrison, as well as uh, Karen Swallow Pryor. You did get it right uh, the first time, though. It is. I did. I just looked it up. <laughs> and three names get me. Three names get me. Tish Harrison Warren. <laughs> I just went back and forth. It was like, I don't know. Uh, but I did have it right the first time. So Karen Swallow Pryor, Tish Harrison Warren, they were in the first segment. And then soon here we'll be joined by Matt and Lori Krieg, authors of a book called An Impossible Marriage. Uh, Ian, uh, 
Supreme Court Justice, Justice uh, Alito, had something really interesting to say, a warning about the dangers to free speech and religious liberty with all that's going on with the coronavirus. But before we do that, I do want to know what the holidays are today. I've convinced you that I love this portion of the show. What are our holidays today? Who said that you convinced me? I don't I don't. I think I did. I did not agree to those terms at all. I do like your setup. You're like, oh, we're going to talk about the dangers to free speech and religious liberty. But real quick, silly holidays. Uh, yes, yes. Whiplash, whiplash. Well, I mean, everyone knows it's Friday the 13th, you know, which is, yes. that's a thing. And you know what happened the last Friday the 13th? Do tell, Brian. The last Friday the 13th was the day that everything shut down for the coronavirus. Dun, dun, dun. March. So uh, now everything's shutting down again. Oh, <laughs> so. that is eerie um it is also yeah. i don't know if you saw my mr rogers post today it is also world kindness day uh, i did can we please post that old picture of you yeah to sure. our- i'm fine with that <laughs> that was a funny picture so it's world kindness day today that feels like a big mm-hmm. one mm-hmm. which is fitting on friday the 13th that feels like an odd juxtaposition it's also sadie hawkins day <laughs> yes. sadie hawkins day um there's a great reliant k song that i'm i'm sure you're aware of sadie hawkins dance no, I'm not. You're not, I'm not aware of how in the no. world? How are you? Are they? Are they a Christian ska band? Oh my just gosh! Joking. I am, I am moving on from that. And maybe Kidding. most importantly, it's National Indian Pudding Day. So <laughs> I don't know why that's so funny. To yeah, me. you laughed a lot harder than I was anticipating. That one caught me. You got really me on did. that. One. <laughs> really did. Oh, interesting. So those are the holidays today. Hey, take take very seriously National Kindness Day. Though I think we could, we all, could all use, use that use right now. That's right. Absolutely. And go to our Facebook page where uh, hopefully Ian will remember to put up the picture of him uh, that he posted earlier today because it is hilarious. How long ago? What would you say that? Seven, seven years, years ago? ago? Yeah, just to set it up. Uh, I was teaching on the passage in Luke 10, uh, the Good Samaritan. I entitled it, Who is My Neighbor or something like that. And unbeknownst to me, the tech photoshopped my face onto Mr. Rogers' body. <laughs> I don't know where the photo came from. And then like just put it on the screen behind me as I took the stage. and. People like audibly gasped. It's a terror. It's a terrifying photo of me. It's terrifying. I don't even know why I posted it today. That was probably a bad idea. But but it's you know wearing a cardigan and someone added Mister Simpkins neighborhood and uh, (laughs) it's wonderful. It's it's wonderful in a Friday the Thirteenth kind of a way. It's frightening for sure. So this is going to drive people to our Facebook page (laughs) or away from it. Go check it out. Well. Uh, as I teased out a little bit at Fox News, Justice Alito, uh, he wrote some stuff uh, about religious liter- liberty and free speech, or he had some things to say. So let me read some of this, okay. and I wonder if you think he's right. I mean, albeit for us to disagree with the Supreme Court justice, but here's what he said. He said, religious liberty and free speech are among Americans' personal freedoms potentially imperiled along with government overreach during the coronavirus pandemic, Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito warned on Thursday. Tolerance for opposing views is now in short supply, Alito said, uh, in a conference of the Conservative Federalist Society in which he referenced the current state of discourse in the nation's law schools and the, quote, broader academic community. He said many recent law school graduates claim they face harassment and retaliation for any views that depart from law school orthodoxy. In certain quarters, religious liberty has fast become a disfavored right, he said. For many today, religious liberty is not a cherished freedom. It's often just an excuse for bigotry, and it can't be tolerated even when there's no evidence that anybody has been harmed. He cited a Supreme Court case about Catholic nuns and a Colorado baker. 
Uh, he says the question we face is whether our society will be inclusive enough to tolerate people with unpopular religious beliefs, he said, saying Christians deserve the same protections of any of the religious minority groups in cases over which he has presided. When Alito, a nominee of George W. Bush, touched on the pandemic, he said it has, quote, resulted in previously unimaginable restrictions on individual liberty and that whatever people believe about the coronavirus restrictions, the U.S. can't allow the restrictions to stand after the pandemic has passed. And he goes on to talk about some of these specific things that have gone on, say, Nevada and other places. But then he goes on later to say the covid crisis has highlighted constitutional fault lines uh, but stressed in his 15 years on the court, good work has been done to protect freedom of speech and religious liberty and the structure of government created by the Constitution. So uh, that's Justice Alito. I found those to be some really interesting thoughts about religious freedom, about the coronavirus. I'm wondering if anything that he talked about there kind of jumped off the page to you. Uh, I mean, there's a, a lot that jumped off the page. I, I made yeah. a post a couple of days ago that was not in any way um, connected to to this story. I said something like, I think we would do well to learn to tell the difference between persecution and consequences, <laughs> which I still I still stand by. Our friend Catherine McNeil weighed in, too. She said, and disagreements like the, you know, just because someone disagrees with you doesn't mean that you're being persecuted. So, you know, that said, I, I don't I don't know that every time somebody claims religious persecution, it is actually that sometimes I think it actually is just consequences for, you know, uh a lack of tact or something that actually is, you know, a, a law being broken. I, it is interesting to me though, because I feel like this is especially, especially with the coronavirus kind of accenting all of these discussions. We've talked about MacArthur a bunch. We talked about Andy Stanley and their decision, you know, not to open at all. And, and how curious it is that um, this conversation, and it feels like every year it is kind of front and center, but it's front and center this year in, in a much different way like he he warns a little later here that religious liberty is in danger of becoming a second class right and i i know a lot of people that that feel that way and he he talks about hostility uh toward people with unfashionable views i i'm i'm torn to be totally honest yeah. some sometimes i think that that's probably true other times if i could just sort of talk about our own camp i've certainly seen christians behave in ways that were very unchristian and then when people responded to unchristian behavior, they claim persecution. I'm like, no, that those are just consequences for being a jerk or or whatever. You know, that's obviously not every situation. Uh, so that's that's part of why I'm torn. There's a lot about a the lot laws of of this conversation that I I still don't think I understand fully. Just cards on the table. There's a lot about this that is still tricky to me. But at the end of the day, you know, and Andy Stanley has done a, a good job, I think, of walking people through this, especially this year. Um, a Christian's first priority isn't demanding their rights. It's it's laying them down, you know? So like, I always try to like start there. Like, where am I demanding my freedom, my rights, whatever, above and beyond maybe somebody else's? That's where it becomes really problematic for me. And uh, I don't know. I don't know if I actually answered your question or not. How do you, how do you feel you about did, it? You did, and I think it's it's interesting to wrestle with it because uh, my thing about religious freedom has always been I'm, I'm going to pound the, the pavement for it, but I want to have religious freedom for all religions, right? That's what we have in America. And a lot of times, unfortunately, some of my Christian friends say like, oh, wait, no, no, I only meant for the Christian. But no, no, we want to talk mm. about it for everyone. And I, I do think he brings up a, a separate interesting point about like a lot of us have given up a lot 
for the because of the coronavirus. And we do have to make sure that that doesn't become permanent. Right. right. Like what's it going to be like when we get back in? But um, I think you you raise a good at least yellow flag about not always calling everything persecution. But at the same time, uh, we, we want to have religious freedom. That's part of our Constitution for us as Christians, for the Muslim, for the Buddhist, right. for whoever else. And uh, we need to be standing up for one another and, and helping one another yes. out. And so Judge Alito, very conservative justice, uh, some interesting things to say here. And we'll put it up on our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Well, coming up next, Matt and Lori Krieg, the authors of a new book called An Impossible Marriage, are going to join us. We're going to talk about their book and all things marriage next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. We're really glad to have you with us here on this Friday afternoon. Hope you're having a great day. And we are really excited to be joined uh, by Matt and Lori Krieg, the authors of a new book called An Impossible Marriage. Matt and Lori, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, we are so glad to be with you. Yeah, super excited to be here. Yeah, thank you guys. Why don't you introduce yourself, however you'd like to our audience. Lori, why don't you go first? Yeah, I am a teacher, author, newly minted, and uh, ministry leader, and the mission of our ministry called Impossible Ministries is to equip the church with a gospel-centered approach to sexuality and marriage. How about you, Matt? And then my name is Matt Krieg, and I am a licensed counselor in the state of Michigan, um, operating Caring Well Counseling. Oh, right on. You guys wrote a book that I imagine plenty of people before they even know what the book is about will be yelling amen, like a book with the title like <laughs> An Impossible Marriage. I imagine right. a lot of people are like, cool, this book's for me, 100%. Don't even need to know what it's about. But this, the story behind it is is fascinating. Can you just give us a, a brief kind of 30,000-foot overview of what the book's about and and why you wrote it in the first place? Yeah, so the book is about essentially the impossible marriage, uh, which is between Christ and the church that we are uh, going to marry Christ <laughs> and how that exactly plays out. We don't exactly know, um, but the way we look at that impossible without Jesus Christ's marriage is we look through the lens of our version of an impossible marriage, which that is a tad bit unique. Uh, in that my default sexual attractions are not toward the gender of my spouse. Hmm. Uh, I, when I struggle with lust, it's toward women. And so hmm. yet here I am called to marriage. Not everyone like me with this mm -hmm. version of sexual brokenness is called to marriage, but uh, here I am married to a dude. So we really <laughs> unpack that, uh, really those how does it work questions and kind of look at really how does any marriage work? Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm curious, this mixed orientation marriage that you guys speak so openly about, just uh, how has that played out for you guys? That's got to have uh, so many nights of late night talks early in your marriage. I'm just curious, just uh, on a personal level, just what has your marriage journey been like? So, so it has been something that, A, we, we didn't walk into it unaware. Lori was very mm. open uh, with me about her, her sexual experience or sexual orientation, um, and her attractions toward women before we ever even started dating really. Mm. And so it's something that we walked into marriage eyes open. Um, yet over the course, over the course of marriage, we, we found that, okay, some of the nuances and some of the, 
um, different and unique kind of challenges that our marriages uh, face is is something that we've we've kind of grown to to confront and and really learn more about over the years that we've been married. The gift of some of that, you know, pillow talk, for lack of a better term, um, <laughs> that's unique to us is it, it it forced us to confront a lot of questions that I don't think, sorry, I'm just going to say it, but like super straight couples have to face, such mm-hmm. as, why are we doing this sex thing? Like, what is this even about? Mm. Or like confronting besides, oh, yeah, you know, you just kind of fall out of love or you lose attraction and you just try and get the spark back. Like, but why, though? (laughs) Or even why are we married? Why is it male and female marriage? Not what are the arguments against same sex marriage? but What are the arguments for God's design for marriage? These are ones that we had to confront head on. And it's been pretty neat because uh, again, you have to choose words, but super straight couples in heterosexual <laughs> marriages, they, uh, when they hear our heart journey, it inspires them uh, to both, yeah, love their spouse, but love God more. Mm-hmm. Super straight couples sounds like a like a very strange superhero that like, <laughs> like, never straight. made it, never yeah never, never made it to print. Um, <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> okay, so and you kind of alluded to this. I would love to know, kind of candidly, what's been some of the response that you've gotten? Like, has the feedback been predominantly positive and supportive, or have you caught backlash, or some version of the two? I mean, we've been in this public biz for about five years. So backlash Mm. is just part of the program of engaging (laughs) marriage and sexuality. Um, It's different, you know, when the backlash is so, so personal, like it's really hard when it's, you know, your life. But I will say overwhelmingly since the book has come out, the couple weeks it's been out, it's been the, the reigning thing people have said that our book does is it leads them to worship. Mm-hmm. which that's bananas. However, <laughs> if you think about the purpose of marriage in our sex difference to seek union exemplifies how very different God <laughs> wants union with very different us. Like mm-hmm. our marriages preach the gospel 24 seven. So that should lead us to worship. So it's, it's kind of head scratching, but at the same time, it's like, Oh shoot, that's what all our marriages are supposed to be doing. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, once you guys release this book and like you said, five years ago or whatever, become much more public about your story. Are you hearing from a lot of other mixed orientation marriages? Cause uh, I'm sure that that this probably has allowed people to start having conversations about their own lives. Are you hearing from a lot of people in that well, in that way? Yeah. Yeah. There, there are a lot of people that reach out. Um, typically it happens in the dead of night through email, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. but it is something that, yeah, people have reached out and said, thank you so much for sharing. That's, that's my experience or that's my husband's experience. This is the type of marriage that we are in. Um, and it, it just, it's been something that I guess has allowed people to realize like you're not alone here. And it's really caused us to, to question and and really confront, I think culturally what we look at as the glue that holds a marriage together, that Mm. it's, that it's not just based on sexual attraction, that it's not just based on this physical aspect of the relationship, but to look at the relationship of marriage much more holistically and much more as, as a metaphor for, for this, ultimate marriage Mm -hmm. that will happen between Christ and the church, as opposed to just two people who tend to, or happen to fall in love. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. I, I'm wondering why, like, what is the significance, do you think, of elevating that metaphor? Because it's certainly the kind of thing that I've I've heard sermons about, and I'm sure there's plenty of people, especially if they're married, they've, they've heard the analogy, but it doesn't... Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel like uh, often in conversation with married people that it's like a central part of the conversation. Like the is is that really significant in your mind to keep that metaphor at the core of sort of your common life together? And if if so, why 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 do you think that's so important? Oh man, it's critical. Since even writing the book and um, walking with people, you know, I do more mentoring, walking, but just being a friend to my fellow married people, I'm constantly looking above them, above their heads, so to speak, to what they're metaphoring. And Mm -hmm. so a wife who is tenderly approaching her husband, who's been emotionally hurt, you know, by his dad didn't realize it, like, that's how God approaches us. He never Mm. forces himself upon us or, you know, a husband cheats or a wife cheats and there's forgiveness. Like, Oh God, I cheat on you all the time. And yet you receive Mm. me or, you know, friends who wrestle with like gender. Like I've got that. They're sexually attracted to spouse wrestle with gender. Like they're seeking difference. Like they're seeking to hold on to, you know, the difference from their spouse and yet union with their spouse. And I'm like, God, you're so different from me. And I'm, I don't want to be you. You're so different. And yet I want union with you and you want union with me. So man, it just takes it to a whole nother level. When you start looking above the, the couple's heads to what they're metaphoring. Yeah. And, and to jump in, like you, it also, if you don't have this metaphor, if, if marriage is ultimately the ending spot or is in our finite earthly marriages, then it, it does a disservice to single people as well. Hmm. I want to ask you guys something uh, that's kind of on the sheet that we got describing your book, because I think it's a fascinating line. If you guys could talk a little bit more about it, it says this, the primary purpose of Christian marriages is not sexual fulfillment stemming from natural attraction. The primary purpose of Christian marriages is to serve as a billboard to tell the world God loves you this much. That's a fascinating line. Can you talk about how our marriages are supposed to serve as a billboard to the world? Yeah, man. So I went on a silent retreat and that was where I wrestled with staying or leaving my marriage. I (laughs) packed a question into my suitcase to go into that silent retreat of what do you want And I left with a conviction after having a really powerful encounter with God that was, God, I want you. And so I want what you have for me, this impossible marriage. And so I started there with, God, I want you. And so I want what you have for me. And then I started looking around and started asking some questions of my friends. And I was so surprised that it seemed like nobody was happy in their marriages. Like, sure, people could quote some things about it makes you, you know, holy, not happy. You know, they could quote, you know, maybe some Keller on meaning of marriage, like it's supposed to, marriage is supposed to sanctify you. But like at the end of the day, it seemed like my friends were staying in it for the kids or because God hates divorce or I don't know. It just seemed like tolerance at at its best and maybe some moments of sweetness. And so I realized I was like, shoot, like, is this all just like a big ploy? Like, is marriage like seriously like a cosmic joke? And then I listened to podcasts and marriage workshops and things like that. And the whole like first 10th 
of the, the podcast or book or something was like gender jabs. And like, mm-hmm. like, oh man, aren't women just like such a bunch of control freak, Pinterest loving, like chatterbox idiots and mm-hmm. men, aren't they, you know, they love their man caves and meat and I don't know, whatever else guys like man caves, <laughs> <laughs> grunting, I don't know. Yeah, that's about and right. And so there's this eye rolling and then I'd say, yeah, why are you guys even married? Like what? what's going on? If everyone hates each other so much, like, why are you married? And so here I was like, okay, God, I'm in this, but I don't get this. I'm in, but why? Hmm. And so I read Ephesians five again, uh, for maybe the millionth time. And because God's word is alive and active, it just stood out to me, the part of Ephesians five thirty one thirty two, 32, like it was profound all of a sudden, which it's this, uh, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but Mm. I'm talking about Christ in the church in that profound mystery, like, like what you were alluding to. Like I, I'd heard this, you know, sure. Christ in the church, marriage, blah, blah, blah. But I was so taken aback that I was like, I think I've thought Christ in the church reflects human marriage. But it's the other way around Mm. that human marriage reflects God's crazy love for the church and how, okay, how different are men from women? Very different, right? (laughs) Like hence the jokes, (laughs) Venus and Mars and all that. But how different is God from humanity? Ontologically different. He is far above every ruler, power and authority, not only in this world, but also in the world to come, it says in Ephesians 1.21. And so I was so blown away when I read that and I saw sex difference was not, not a cosmic joke. It was not cosmic punishment, but sex difference in marriage is cosmic divine design that when very different woman dies to herself to be one with very different man, We show the world a picture, a living, breathing billboard gospel (laughs) picture in our neighborhoods, grocery stores, and in our homes. How Jesus died to be one with us and how we are to die daily to Mm. seek increasing oneness with him. That's good. Mm. It is everything. Yeah. Yeah. Matt, I'm wondering, how would you answer that question? Your your wife did a fabulous job with it, but what, what would you have to add to that? Well, I, I think the the big thing people would look at at, at her particular um, just submitting her 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 attractions and say, oh well, it's obvious that she is dying to herself in this marriage, and mm-hmm. and I would have to say that man, this is not something that is just our marriage. This is not something that is just her in our marriage. This is something that that I have had to do, mm-hmm. um, and it's something that that we are all called to do, um, and so that that. that that design, that billboarding of this union between Christ and the church is something that is a high calling. And it's the only thing I think that can really keep you in a marriage when the marriage is not um, easy. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, you also have a podcast called Hole in My Heart. And in part of the part of the description, you talk about uh, really wanting people to understand that the gospel is good news for everyone, every day. I love that. A lot of that is kind of the same heartbeat behind even the name of our show, the, the common good. Um, mm. And kind of honing in on the common, the double meaning of common and how you know often we miss 
the gospel in like the everyday moments. And we also forget yeah. what we have in common. I think it's really significant. I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about the podcast. What is what is sort of the aim of the podcast? Who's the podcast for? What are you excited about mm-hmm. coming up next with the podcast? Any any of that is fair game. Yeah, man, that's like one of the highlights of our week is recording that that puppy. And mm. even in our marriage, real turmoil, we still were recording some of those first seasons. And it was such a moment where we'd look across the microphone and we go, oh, yeah, I like you. But the focus, you know, we need those moments. Right, right. But the focus is uh, it's 20 to 40 something Christian people, young people, well, whatever, whatever young is, uh, but who are want the gritty gospel good news in everyday life. And I was just tired of sexuality conversations, gender conversations, being relegated to a basement corner, if at all, in any part of the, the church at all, you know, a church basement corner. So I was like, let's take it out from that corner and let's bring it into the sanctuary and let's not get graphic, but let's get real. Mm. And um, it's been so refreshing to take sexuality and gender conversations within the mix of other gritty gospel good news stories. And it's been fun. We've interviewed people like um, Ann Voskamp. We just did John Mark Comer and Scott Mm. Sauls is coming up next week and um, Jackie Hill Perry. Just like it's been such a joy. So those are some whatever bigger names, but just to talk (laughs) to real people in their real life. Yeah. Uh, And Matt, with maybe the last minute we have left here, there might be people listening right now going, oh, my gosh, I so need to hear this. My marriage, I I might want out. It's just such a struggle. Could you end by giving maybe a minute of encouragement to someone who might be listening going, I don't know if I want to stay. I'm just struggling. But I kind of resonate with what they're saying. Could you maybe take a minute and just encourage that person? Yeah, yeah. Well, to to quote our, our good friend, Kurt Thompson, uh, you can focus on the the problems in a marriage very easily, but to to really look at what it is that you want to create in this relationship. And one of the things that if if we look at marriage as a gospel metaphor, and if we look at our marriages individually, we're each going to have places where we are strong and how we can really exemplify God to the one right next to us. And so I would just encourage you find the places in your marriage where you have common ground where you have like a stronger connection, be that the friendship, be that an emotional connection, intellectual connection. It doesn't just have to be about this physical aspect of marriage. Mm. Maybe a podcast. Yeah, maybe a podcast. (laughs) Uh, And so as Ian brought up again, you can find their podcast, Hole in My Heart podcast. Uh, Lori, you can also find at lorikrieg.com. That's L-A-U-R-I-E-K-R-I-E-G.com. Uh, also find their new book, An Impossible Marriage, uh, at IVPPress.com, or I'm sure wherever it is that you get your books. Matt and Lori, this was really great. Thank you so much for joining yeah, us today. Thank you, guys. It was a joy. Yeah, thanks for having us. A pleasure. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us on this Friday evening uh, as we kind of close up the week. Ian, uh, we're about to do some stories of good news. One of the good news stories is it is the weekend. Uh, do you guys have any big plans? What are the Simpkins doing on uh, what's going to be a, what's like a brisk fall weekend? I don't understand your fascination with, with this question. It's never exciting. It's never <laughs> never like we're going to Fiji. Ryan, it's uh, one of these times. One of these. You times. think so? I, I, <laughs> Not Fiji. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be so certain. No. Yeah. We're. I mean, it's. We're planning on a pretty, 
pretty low-key weekend. Do you guys have big plans? Uh, we do not. It is hopefully a lot of outside time. Like we talked about, I believe, in the very first segment of the show here, there's now that whole specter of like, what can we do? Like, what yeah. is open? Like, that's a weird part to try to think about. Oh, wait. Yeah, no, I kind of oh. was just thinking we should go grab some food. But can we? Where can we go? So right. that's what's weird. But try to spend some time outside while it's still bearable before the winter comes and hopefully have just a good weekend. So something you introduced near the beginning of the pandemic, uh, we kind of went into this. We used to do crazy stories at the end of our show. Crazy that would be mildly stories. uncomfortable. Uh, and we kind of shifted to doing stuff from good from the goodnewsnetwork.org or other good news stories because we kind of thought, you know what, with all the heaviness around us in this world, like it's nice just to uh, take a deep breath and just read some stories that put a smile on your face. And so I've grabbed four of them for us today. And that's how we're going to not just close out this show, but close out the week. And so, Ian, as we tend to do, uh, I'm going to let you go first and choose whichever one you want. Uh, what a what a gentleman and a scholar. This first one, the headline reads, welcome. man sits with typewriter on New York City sidewalk to help strangers send letters to friends feeling blue. What? You got to see the photo, too. It's just him like with a... Yeah. A little table and a, and a legit typewriter, by the way, not a computer. Yep. It says, before the invention of text messaging, which makes it super easy to send a note to a friend. I love how the author thought, I probably should explain the benefits <laughs> of text messages <laughs> just so that everyone's on board. Um, right. And before there were telephones in every home that could connect you instantly with a loved one, there were letters. Sure, you might need to wait a few days or weeks for that postman to deliver it, but the special feeling it contained made it worth the wait. I will say I'm a big believer in letters, big fan. I don't get a whole lot more these days, but, you know. Although a letter offers no instant gratification, handwritten correspondence were always highly anticipated and savored. Their stationary envelope and stamp were saved as mementos to be read and reread and treasured. In the face of worry over the coronavirus pandemic and all the stress that is placed on New Yorkers, a Brooklyn-based performance artist and English professor, Brandon Wolf, uh, came up with the idea of reviving the letter-writing tradition as a means to reach out and comfort one another. Knowing that people have lost loved ones, jobs, and businesses, and given up simple pleasures like hugs from a friend, Wolf began to ponder how to help people make meaningful connections, which, what a great aim. Like, I think, I just, I yeah. just think that's... That's a that's a that's a cool guy right there. Um, really is. So his answer was to take a page from history. When interpersonal connection is risky, what are other ways where we can be together? Wolf pondered in an interview with the Park Slope Scribe. What is a better experience than getting a piece of mail in your mailbox from somebody you didn't expect to hear from? Which I I, can't, right. I forget the comedian, but I, I remember him talking about how our excitement has shifted. Where like. Um, we used to get really annoyed by mail and then like, but excited by an email. Like when internet was, you know, first becoming a thing, I was like, Oh my gosh, I got an email. And I was completely flipped. Like we're so annoyed by emails, but if we were to actually get a, a piece of personal mail, like that would be, that would be really meaningful. And so that's, that's what this guy's doing. My hat's off to you. I think that is a wonderful idea. You say, you say that about letters literally right before starting the show, I got the mail and you know, you're used to, yeah. uh, you know, junk mail, or bills, and all of a sudden there was one that was handwritten said Mr. and Mrs. Brian and Carrie oh, from, and I was like, oh, mail. That's, awesome. <laughs> that's exactly what you just I said. It. I had that excitement today. Uh, and then it was a bill. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, this next one uh, is this single foster dad adopts five siblings so they won't have to be apart like he was in his childhood. Oh. While it's true that none of us get to choose our relatives when we're born, we can have a say in who we choose to call family. 
that uh, that's just what foster dad Robert Carter did when he decided to adopt an entire brood of five siblings. 29-year-old Carter, who'd spent years in the Ohio foster care system himself, knew only too well what it was like to lose touch with loved ones. He entered the system at age 12. Wow. It wasn't until years later that he was finally reunited with his younger sister and brother. The children Carter adopted, whose names are Mariana, Michaela, Robert, Giovanni, and Chiante, were living in three separate foster homes when he was awarded custody. Wow. Mr. Carter was the only foster parent willing and able to adopt all of the children. His childhood background has made him aware of the importance of keeping siblings together. Prior to the adoption, Carter was already fostering the three brothers when he arranged for the girls and their foster moms to meet up so the children wouldn't lose touch with one another. He realized how distressed they all were at the end of the visit. He knew that there was only one course of action. The responsibility was a lot for the single dad to take on by himself, but Carter was determined to keep these kids together. It's not always easy. You can choose your family, but that doesn't mean they're going to feel like family overnight. Uh, what a cool man. story. That's unbelievable. Right you there. you picked some real winners today. This next one I actually saw a couple of days ago, and it is wonderful. Athlete with Down syndrome makes history as first to finish an Ironman race and gifts <laughs> the medal to his mom. The video that I saw was him like, yeah, hugging his trainer and then hugging his parents and like, ugh. I'm, there's no way I'm going to get through this story without nope. crying. It's awesome. Crying. Uh, <laughs> clocking in at 16 hours, 46 minutes, nine seconds, just 14 minutes shy of the 17 hour cutoff time. Triathlete Chris uh, Nikik, does that sound right? I think that's Nikik, it. Nikik yeah, didn't finish with the fastest time when he recently completed his first Ironman race, but he did set a new world record this past Saturday. After swimming 2.4 miles, the 21-year-old Floridian cycled 112 miles and then ran 26.2-mile marathon to become the first competitor with Down syndrome to successfully cross the finish line in the 42-year history of the Ironman race. I actually didn't realize Ironman had been around that long. Uh, quote, you have shattered barriers while proving without a doubt that anything is possible, tweeted the official Ironman Triathlon organization. We are beyond inspired, and your accomplishment is a defining moment in Ironman history that can never be taken away from you. For his awe-inspiring efforts, Nick Kick also earned himself a place in the Guinness Book of World Records as the first person with Down syndrome to become an official Ironman. Being the first person with Down syndrome is a great feeling, Nick Kick told today. Prior to the event, I can, uh, prior to the event, period. <laughs> I can prove to kids that if I can do it, they can do it too. Oh, I love it. Nick's father, Nick. Hold on. Nick Nickick. <laughs> His dad's name is Nick Nickick. All right. That's another that's another story. For another time, hopes that parents of other children with Down syndrome who uh, see what his son has achieved will be inspired. We want them to realize earlier that their child is a blessing and they can live an amazing life. I That's There's awesome. a whole much more to the story, but I, are you like an Ironman guy? Are you into races or whatnot, or does that even matter? No. no. Uh, Matt, I saw the same video you did. I mean, it's awe-inspiring yeah. and beautiful. Uh, it's crazy. This last one needs to become a movie. Uh, this is a, a movie waiting to happen. It says, instead of putting him in a nursing home, grandson brings 95-year-old World War II vet on epic bucket list RV trip. Wow. When 95-year-old veteran Johnny Demas lost his full-time caregiver and wife of 67 years, there didn't seem to be many options other than to move out of his house and into a nursing home. But he and his late wife had always vowed not to go into a nursing home, so his grandson Roger devised a plan. He moved Grandpa Johnny from Illinois to live with Roger and his wife, Joe, in Sedona, Arizona, two years ago. And last October, they decided to embark on an epic journey around the USA in their motorhome 
visiting all of the places on their grandfather's bucket list. They did Mardi Gras. They went to Las Vegas to an encounter with a camel named Roger at a dairy farm on the Mexican border. He even made it to several World War II museums where Johnny was treated like a rock star and meet other vets. It says, I think it was deeply cathartic for Grandpa. They even named uh, the bus, the uh, the RV, Sweet Mary Bus, because his wife was named Bar- Mary, mm-hmm. and she used to he used to call her Sweetie all the time. We've got to put this story up because it starts showing pictures of all the places. And then it says at the end they were going to go to Graceland, but at the age of 96, he passed away. And they talk about just how impactful this mm-hmm. was. This is like a made-for-movie right here. Uh, such a cool thing that this guy and his wife did for their grandpa. Yeah, I love it. And uh, yeah, really cool. Well, we wanted to end with some inspiration. Lots of hard stuff in the world these days, uh, but lots of stories to inspire and to put a smile on your face. Well, we hope that you have a great weekend. If you missed any of the show, go download the podcast and uh, you can find it there. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. 